It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. You know, it's often been said that we should never meet our heroes because they will disappoint us. For the most part, for me, that's true. Having met most of my heroes... And they did disappoint me, but there is one who has always been a true professional with a beautiful heart and soul, and she continues to inspire me every day. There were days in my career, and I know she doesn't know this, there were days in my career where I would have to stop myself when I was facing the adversity, and I would say, what would Mary Jo do? (laughs) And countless people have shared with me through the years how she gave them a confidence boost when they needed it the most just by being her true authentic self and by being kind, which is a rarity in this industry. Mary Jo West has been called the first lady of TV news in Phoenix. She became the first primetime anchor woman in Phoenix in 1976, thus opening the door for us women who followed in her footsteps. Being a trailblazer in the field was not easy as she dealt with a male co-anchor who saw the newsroom as a man's domain and wasn't pleased that she would be sharing the anchor desk with him. But, you know, she was determined to be more than just an arm decoration. She wanted to talk about issues that were vital and to report stories of substance. Now that is a true journalist. She was the first woman to go into the Arizona State Prison in Florence and interview inmates for her documentary on sexual assault, for which she won a Rocky Mountain Emmy. And boy, let me tell you about this lady. She's won so many awards. She's got the Peabody. She's got two Rocky Mountain Emmys, 13 Arizona Press Club Awards, and the National Gracie Allen Award from American Women in Radio and TV. She was the first newswoman inducted into the Arizona Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And the city of Phoenix even honored her with the Martin Luther King Living the Dream Award for her work fighting discrimination against the mentally ill. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm containing my excitement. I'm trying not to shed tears because when I look at you, Mary Jo... As I've told you this several times through the last you know, few years, seeing you up here in the studio, every time I see you, it is like walking into this room with this beautiful soul because you know as well as I do, women don't treat each other that well, especially in this industry. But you not only treat women well, you treat men well. And even with what you faced when you first started out in the 70s, you know, anchoring with Bill Close, the crusty curmudgeon that didn't like you sharing the, the co-anchor deal. I am just so super impressed by who you are as a person because you exemplify what it really means to be not only a true journalist by what you've done and accomplished in your career, but you make everybody feel so good inside. And that is something that I have never run into in this industry. And for that... I am so truly honored to share the air chair with you today here on Get Real. So thank you for being here. Robin, I am just humbled 
and honored by that incredible introduction. You got everything right. <laughs> you did your research, and I'm in, I'm humbled to be with you because I've watched you over the past few years, and we are honored because you are bringing something new and different as a woman, as a, a soul, to our community that nobody else is. And this is where I get my joy, watching people like you blossom and shine. And your book, I know you've got another one coming out. But Soon, so, yeah. <laughs> Soul Stirrings, I reread it. And uh, I, I can't congratulate you enough. I mean, how many people can say they've written a book? Not too many. I've written Every, two, but, you know, yes. it's, it's, it's a process you go through. But with you, I mean, I honestly, we had this conversation just a minute ago about my attire when you walked in the room. <laughs> Without you being in the forefront and, you know, there... As a girl growing up, I was born in 1967. So here I am watching you on the nightly news here on Cool TV, as it was called back then. And I'm watching this as a nine and 10 year old looking at you like, you know, I didn't have the best role models as parents. And my mom never really had a voice of her own. She didn't stand up for herself. So as not having a real strong role model as a young girl, it was the only thing that I had to look at was you doing the news every night. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but a lot of people do that. They look at their heroes. They look at their their sports figures. They look at whoever, and they tend to start to emulate them. And I honestly don't think I would be where I am today if you hadn't started to break that glass ceiling for women back then. Because, you know, there were other people we saw that made national headlines, but, you know, like Jessica Savage, it, it took an accident to take her out of this world for us to realize what kind of a reporter she was and what kind of journalist. But with you being in my own backyard and watching you every night when I was growing up, I kept looking at you like, I want to be like that someday. I want to be that strong female role model that girls and women can look at and say, I like how she is. I like how strong she is. I mean, you've done some really cool stuff in your career. You, you drove, you went out with the police force and did things with police women that some of us are like, well, I wanted to be a cop, but that stuff's scary. You, you went into the prison system. You did so many things that women didn't get the opportunity to do. You did break that glass ceiling and you showed a lot of people. And it's, it's what I see in myself because if I didn't have that when I was younger, to look at you and how strong and how powerful you were just by being that presence in you're not bubblegum. You're not sugar coated. Like a lot of the, I don't call them journalists today. It's so different. I see the women on TV news as um, we're going to go try to make our run for Hollywood, but we're going to get our little practice in here in Phoenix. But I saw somebody who was hard nosed. I saw somebody that went out there and dug, got in the trenches and did things yeah. And showed us that you're more than just a pretty face or the arm decoration next to the male counterpart. And I want to take you back because I think it's cool when we can actually go back into the past and look at where we've been and what we've accomplished. What was it like for you in the very beginning, the first day you got that job and you showed up on set? sitting next to that old curmudgeon Bill Close. <laughs> what was it like on your first day? Do you remember? Oh, yes. I remember everything about it. And I definitely remember the job interview because he asked me what my bra size was. Seriously. And he was of that that other generation. That That's how some people spoke to women. 
Well, first, Robin, I have to back up. I am sitting here with water in my eyes. Should I get the tissue up. out? <laughs> you know, at the time I was doing it, what you've made me realize is that I had no idea the impact that I was having on young people, and not just me, of course, the other anchor women during that time uh, that came, who came before me, and there were only a handful nationwide. Thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. And if I had known that you were out there watching, I would have done what I did with many, many young people. They would call, and I would invite them to the studio and take them to dinner. And I would have done that in a heartbeat with you. So uh, we'll just have to do it later. You know, we'll, we'll go to, I'll take you to dinner oh, <laughs> real, that, real, that, real soon. That is an honor for me to even hear you say oh, that. Oh, are you kidding? Of course, in a heartbeat. Robin, what it was like was, like all of us, I think um, some of us uh, feel like we were making it up as we went. And there were days I had that. You know, Bill Close, now that I've had some perspective about his behavior, I think he was a bit frightened, not of me personally, but of sharing the spotlight, because he was an icon and he was a legend. And some of the things he would say to me before the newscast began were horrific. And I could have owned the station if if I had said to the director, can we videotape this? But this was in the late 70s. And you know, Christine Kraft was a woman who was an anchor woman who was let go because they felt that she was too old and her looks, and she did not win her lawsuit. So it was not the right timing to do that. On the other hand, um, I decided, and we all can do this, and I know you've done this too, Robin, if there's someone at our job that is bringing us down, in this case, I couldn't walk away. What I did was learn from Bill. Bill was an expert on politics throughout the entire state. He knew everybody. He'd been here forever, so I learned from him. Also, he helped me with grammar. He helped me with writing. And many nights he would say, see me after the newscast, and I'd go into his, his office and he would correct me on something. And that was the positive that I got from Bill. I loved Bill. I didn't like his behavior at all. I love his family. And uh, Bill, though, just like in writing in your book and in your stories, he toughened us up. They toughened us up. After Bill Close, anything else was downhill professionally, even going to network. <laughs> so I, I decided to dwell on the positive. And, and to be perfectly honest, and I still am, I think you've got this same quality. I think it's a quality, maybe not. I'm fearless. Right. You know, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, I just stumbled upon this quote recently in a book I was reading, said, make sure that every day you do something, one thing that scares you. And that's what I did. Going into Florence prison was very, very scary. We had had uh, a lot of elderly women get raped in our valley, and I wanted to know why. So we went to the prison, and I just remember my photographer and I, videographer, Bill Walsh, the prison guard said, you're on your own, honey. Wow. And, you know, it was very scary. And found out that the reason these particular men raped was because of anger. That's usually most of the reasons and why. rage. It yeah. had nothing to do with sex. And so, you know, here I go back to the, to the studio and do the, the programming of the news series, and, and Bill won't even say the word rape on the air or pregnant. Uh, and that was the difference of generations. 
So it was it was a tough time. But the great news was the young male reporters and female reporters, we were very supportive of each other, and they were supportive of me. So that generation has is almost gone, and God bless them. But, you know, there are still a lot of things that women today in the news are still suffering from. The cosmetic burden yes. is still huge. You know, we're not allowed to age on the air. And I was, frankly, taken off the air probably 10 to 20 years early because I got, I had the sin of having birthdays. But, you know, we just, I just decided to go a different direction. And I'm glad that you're still doing things because your role in this lifetime is so very important because you inspire so many people to continue even after the fact. And I've seen a lot of female counterparts that have disappeared off the airwaves and they're always bringing in the the young girl. You and I were talking about this the other day when you were here that you see guys in their 60s with a 20, 25-year-old anchor sitting next to them. Yes. And it still hasn't changed. And, you know, even when you see some of the reporters plucked out of here and taken to national networks, when you watch them on their first broadcast on the national network, they look like a Barbie doll. It's like, what happened to you? Botox or a facelift, uh, different hair, different makeup. Oh, yes. And I know that people who do the local news, they have to do their own hair and makeup. They don't have a staff to do that for them, which, you know, I see the men, they do their own powder and everything. But it's it's still a double standard. You, you're still not allowed to be a real journalist and be a person on the air because they're expecting you to have that certain look about you. And to me, I, that's what I loved about radio was no one cared what I looked like. <laughs> you could be yourself and do what you needed to do. And it wasn't about your physical appearance. Nobody's going to care because they hear your voice and they connect with you that way. And I've had so many friends that have left TV news because of the scrutiny they fall under, not just from their own news staff, but from the general public now with the invent of social media getting picked on. I mean, we were we grew up in a different era. You were on the air in a much different era where that wasn't around. I mean, someone would literally have to call the station or write in, I don't like what she's wearing today. And that happened a lot. It's They would post every day. The operator uh, who answered the phone would post every day the comments that people would call in, like, what happened to her tonight? When is she going to get an eye job? You know, on and on and on. And I wish they had called in more about the substance of the stories I was doing, but it is a visual medium. In fact, one of my new former news directors, who I do love, and he's a longtime friend, he had a famous saying in his newsroom, no space for an ugly face. Whoa. And he still believes that to this day. And that makes me sad. Would you know If Charles Corralt, uh, the, the famous Charles Corralt from years ago, had been a woman, would he have been hired? It is totally unfair. So what you do is... As you work around it. And by the way, those who are listening, Robin is a knockout. <laughs> she is so beautiful. I, I know that you don't want necessarily for me to say that, but <laughs> she could do TV in a heartbeat and you could. And I, I tried. I tried, but I walked away from it because I was 19 years old and I was actually interning down at the same station oh, you worked for. I did not know that. And I actually was sent out into the field. And at this point, my son, I had my son at 17. So here's a 19 and a half year old girl trying to branch from radio into TV. I was sent into South Phoenix and this lady in uh, one of the worst neighborhoods, her little six-year-old son was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. 
they mistook the house, and this was a gang shooting. It was the house next door they should have been aiming at, but the little kid was in the in the bedroom, and it went right through the house and killed the little kid. And as you know, we get in these little earpieces, and they tell us what we're supposed to do before we go to the segment. And I will never forget it. This was actually my first on air live thing that was your first story and i was told you know go up to her and ask her how she feels and it it, for like a minute i'm sitting here waiting before we go to it i couldn't do it mary joe i started crying because i was a mom to a a little kid and my son wasn't much younger and i'm like how would that make me feel for someone to come and stick a microphone and a camera in my face and ask me you know, how do you feel that your son was killed in this drive-by shooting by mistake? I mean, how am I supposed to feel? That's devastating. That's heart-wrenching. That's gut-wrenching. That's the end of my world for a while until I can work through my grief. And I just looked at the guy behind the camera. I'm like, dude, I can't do this. And I, I said a few expletives. I said, I can't do this shit. And I put it down and I walked away Robin, and I quit on the spot I because understand. it just wasn't in my genetic makeup to do that. I mean, if I had been not a mom, I don't know if I could have been able to do it, but it takes it takes a special kind of person to be able to compartmentalize and do those sort of things and you know, even though I looked up to you, I didn't feel like I would disappoint my mentor, any of my never, mentors by never, walking away never. because that meant that I had a soul. It and does. It does. What I learned to do is the videographers who at that time, uh, we always had a videographer. Now, to get into this business, you have to be able to do everything. Right. Um, but so many times in those situations that I would encounter, instead of sticking the mic in the person's face, the videographer would just take the natural sound of the crying, the neighbors consoling the person, instead of getting that all-important sound bite. And, of course, those pictures were worth a thousand words. And I totally relate to what you were saying, and I understand why you walked away. How could you not at 19 years old with a child? So I, I, I respect you for, for knowing what you needed to do, my dear, so don't, don't worry. Well, I'm going to turn the tables on Robin. <laughs> I want to ask her a question. Sure. Um, the first question is, why are you writing a third book, and what is it new? And I said there's thousands of new things you could share of but what what new do you want us to know about you and your life? The only reason why I write, well, there's actually a couple. First, it's very cathartic because therapy never worked for me. And that was putting words down on paper and being able to expel what everyone says, your demons or your trauma. Being able to expel that out of your system is just so very healthy. So that's what always worked for me because, again, like I said, I did not have a good support system at home. I had a mother that really wasn't there for me and I had to figure out how to navigate my life and pen and paper did it for me. I'm very old school and now it's talk to text or typing on a computer. But the whole reason why I started writing books was, you know, a few years back when I wrote the first one, the first one was more about setting the record straight because I lost a daughter because of the man I was married to. I had a son and then a year later I had a daughter but he didn't want girl children. And at this point, I was in such an abusive relationship with him. I was disassociated from my family. They didn't see what was going on. He took this daughter and gave her away. Oh my. So, you know, th- at that point, 
And I'm 18 years old after I lose her. So here I'm going through all of this at a young age. I finally break free of that abusive marriage when I'm 20. But then it takes me another almost 30 years to put this out in paper. And it's only because I'm trying to explain to my daughter after we initially came in contact with each other, what had happened, why things had turned out the way they did. And I did it as a blog originally and did it on Facebook. And it's so funny because I never envisioned myself as a book writer. I'm not a regular author. I do things so differently. But if it wasn't for the feedback I was getting from people on Facebook that were reading these blog entries about what was happening in my prior life before now and where I'd taken my life to, I wouldn't have probably done a first book. And it was just everyone going, every day they jump on and they'd be like, hey, Robin, what happened next? We're waiting. Come on, come on. So even though I had a full-time life going on, these people on social media were goading me to do this. And it was so therapeutic. And then to hear people say, you need to put this into a book. So I did. And as much as it was healthy for me to get that book out, that's not even my heart and soul. Soul Stirrings is my heart and soul because that's a much bigger message because we don't talk about a lot of subject matters and I was silenced for so many years between my parents not allowing me to have a voice and then being in an abusive relationship and not having a voice. And as I've gotten a lot older, I realized that we can't allow our past to keep us back there. We can't stay silent because that's not what it's about. Um, a lot of people don't want you to share your stories. No, they don't. Your that's, fa- that's the older generation. Yes. Too. Yes. They're horrified that that we can be so open about our weaknesses or things that have happened to us. But thank goodness those social media people encouraged you. Right. And you were not intimidated by the writing process. It's so no. many listening think that they have to write perfectly. You no. don't. No. What I love about soul stirrings is your writing style is because it's like you're sitting in the room with me talking to me. It's a conversation. It's conversational. There aren't any of those horrible bureaucratic words. <laughs> yeah, and I do use expletives. And I remember my publisher, she's like, we got to tone this down a little bit. <laughs> and I remember the first book, it was kind of funny because um, I had gone to several publishers and I decided to self-publish on the first book because they were like, well, you can't use all these cuss words. And I said, you don't understand something. First of all, I'm writing about domestic violence. If I take the expletives out and sugarcoat this, people who read this that have been there are going to say, she's full of shit. She's never, (laughs) she hasn't lived this life. And I'm sorry, but you know, in my first marriage, the F word was my power word. That was when I, I finally struck back after he drew blood and you know, he left me within the next few days because he lost his grip of control on me because I no longer had that fear. And that's, That's one of the reasons why I love this platform with Get Real, because Dave gives me the opportunity to use my voice and my platform to have other voices on that have gone through things and they can shed the light on the darkness because that's what we're supposed to do. If, you know, I've always been told this, God doesn't give us more than what we can handle. And it really sucks sometimes when you're the one that has to handle a lot. So if you're still standing after handling all of that that you've been through, then why are you, what's your purpose? Why are we the ones that are still standing and yet we're here? We're not just survivors, we're thrivers. So we have to be a sur thriver, as I like to say. That's great. 
and you have to tell your stories because it's important. We're not going to be around forever. So telling your stories for the next book, what, what, what do we have to look forward to? It's probably just more true life stuff. And um, the beginning of it's going to be, it's called Web of Lies. But again, it's just real life journeys. And one is going to be the last marriage that I got out of. It's going to be an introduction into gaslighting and understanding what gaslighting is and how people will use your love against you by gaslighting you into, it's basically another abusive type relationship. And knowing that I'm the strong person and yet again, I fell for something just because of love and I didn't understand. And I've been out of that relationship almost seven years. And the idea that, even me surviving domestic violence could fall back into that again because sure. I, I let my emotions get the better of me. Of course, we all do. We all do. What have been the positive symptoms, if that's the right way to phrase it, of your going forward, of bearing your soul compared to how you were feeling before you bared your soul? Have there been some payoffs? Yes. Um, freedom is the biggest payoff. Yay. Because... <laughs> When you get to, uh, they always say that when you get to a certain age, you don't care about other people's opinions of you. They don't matter. And not to take it, that one of the four agreements, don't take anything personally, because it rarely has anything to do with you. A lot of times people are projecting onto you how they really feel about themselves because they are too afraid to look in the mirror and deal with their own stuff. And the fact that I can purge this stuff without an issue, I don't worry about judgment and Years ago, I would have because I was afraid of what everybody would think. And then you get to that point where you get in your life and you're like, you know what? What's the point of worrying about that? And I come to work in a beautiful place. I meet many wonderful people who have been in the trenches and dark places. And I see what they've accomplished. And that's the one thing I've always looked at, especially with you, Mary Jo, because I'm going to turn this back on you in a second. But I see some of the things that you've accomplished in your life. And then I find, you know, you reveal something else. You were on a show not long ago, you know, over a year ago where you revealed something and that threw me for a loop because I'm like, I would never have thought that about you. And then I see what you did with it. And it it just makes you feel really empowered to know that no matter what someone goes through, it's always about what they do with it and how they handle it. And then if they share it to help others, and I've got no reason to complain about what I've been through because there's other people who have been through a lot worse and look what they're doing with that. And that's, that's so phenomenal to me to see how powerful words are because back in the day, it was sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt mm. me. And when you come from an abusive background, you realize words do a hell of a lot more damage than, than being bruised up and backhanded by somebody. Yes. Because in my case, most of my abuse was, in fact, emotional right. and verbal. And that takes a toll on you. And when, you, when you're able to finally get to that place where you realize that it has nothing to do with you, that it's their issues that they're trying to work out through you and on you, you have such a level of freedom that you can finally let go of all that garbage. Freedom is such a perfect word you're using there. There is a level of freedom. And you, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about this because you said nothing is, you know, nothing's off limits. And when you were sitting in here talking about your journey through mental health, I know that you have done some amazing things in the community 
when it comes to mental health issues, but for you to sit here and open up yourself and talk about your own mental health journey, that was mind blowing to me because I never even you never knew that. No. And yeah. a lot of people don't know a lot about that about you is the fact that you actually had your own struggles with mental illness and you actually took a proactive <laughs> journey into doing that. So, I mean, share that with us if you would. The bottom line to those who are listening, if you yourself have experienced mental illness or know someone uh, who has or have it, you have to get into your head that mental illness is an illness. It is not a weakness. I inherited from both sides of my family the illness of clinical depression and even had a four-month saga of being bipolar as well. This came to a head at the height of my anchor career, and I was secreted into Camelback Hospital, which was a world-famous hospital here at the time for mental illness, and when none of the drugs at the time, this was 1981, when none of the drugs at the time, lithium and just a couple of more, wouldn't work, my wonderful psychiatrist said, we think you need ECT, electroconvulsive therapy or shock treatments. And you can imagine my husband at the time, Jim West, who I love and adore and we're still dear friends, the weight that fell on him and me to make that decision. So had those three, we had, I had three instead of the typical 10 or 12 at that time. And what those shock treatments did was make me well enough to go back on the air in two weeks. And it was never discussed ever by Bill Close and me, but the head of the station knew all about it and was completely 100% supportive. And they, you know, in most cases, I should have been fired. Not right. But they kept me. And I kept, and a year later, I'm at Network News in New York. So I finally decided because Sandy Schwartz was head of our mental health association here in Phoenix, and he and Cheryl Collier is her name. She was executive director. They talked me in to going forward with my story, and I did. And I addressed their annual seats conference, and one thing led to another. I ended up on the Oprah Winfrey show and shared my story. You know, Oprah Winfrey even had clinical depression big time. And so I testified at the legislature. Uh, the White House invited me to come and address, uh, be part of their uh, White House conference on mental illness, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been a blessing to share my story and even meet one-on-one with people who still call to this day and say, will you talk to me in person? And of course I will. So that's my story. I'll be on medication the rest of my life, have been since 93. Finding the right medication was a nightmare, but we finally did. And... Uh, I am whole. I am myself. And of course, I could have a relapse and have had relapses, but go back to the doctor and get the right medication. Look at my lifestyle. So please, please know if you are in the darkness right now, you don't have to stay there. And don't let that stigma get to you because not once did I lose a job. In fact, uh, when it got the worst it ever could be, I worked for the city of Phoenix, went to my boss, told him, and he was completely supportive. His name was Mark Hughes. And then eventually I even counseled with city employees who had the illness. So I could go on and on, but that's my story. It's true. It's real. The darkness of clinical depression is indescribable. But uh, 
you can overcome it. That's what I love about you is the fact that when you came in here and that just came out of nowhere, I don't know how that conversation started on that show. And just hearing that, it just really showed me that you really are one of those people that, you know, like I said in the beginning, the the heroes that you meet in your lifetime, every one of them has disappointed me. But that one endeared me to to you even more because it's like, you're not afraid to talk about it. Mm, no. And, you know, again, it's always about a stigma. You have to keep your mouth shut. You're not allowed to talk about those dark subjects. But the fact that you're still working with people and you're able to actually sit down and have conversations like this openly about it, that's what we need to do. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We've blown smoke in the air so many years talking about things we're supposed to be talking about. But instead of talking about them, we need to be having conversations and people just don't do that. They're so afraid to be open. Yes, they are. And most of it has to do with losing one's job. But now the law has kicked in to protect people with mental illness. Thank goodness. My dream is that there somehow there'll be more funding available for brain research. It's a chemical imbalance. I take medication to make sure that the serotonin gets to the right place and gives me my life back. And it does. And so if we can think of it like that, think of all your friends or if you're listening or you yourself may take medication for diabetes or heart or whatever. Or hormones. Or hormones or Mm -hmm. a thousand other things. Don't be afraid to take medication uh, to help get you back to you. And that was exciting. The lights came on. And I know a lot of people talk to you about the, the famous incident of Bill Close being held hostage on the yes, air. Yes. But I want to go somewhere a little bit different. And if you want to go back and visit that, we can. But I remember, this is what scared the hell out of me when I saw the news reports. And I believe it was in the late 80s, going maybe like 1989 or something. It was 82. Well, that was the hostage thing. I'm sorry. I meant the other thing that happened to you. Oh. Because... You oh, know, the kidnapping? Yes. yes. I believe this yes. was like, I had just, I was out of high school, not even a couple of years. And I remember turning on the TV and hearing yes. this. I'm like, who the hell kidnapped Mary Jo? And I remember my mom looking at me and she's like, what are you talking about? I said, that's not right. That is not right. Why would they do? And I know that, you know, like I said, everybody talks about the other incident that happened earlier but this one really struck a chord with me because yes. because it was like it was weird. It was weird. It was uh, it was a late Tuesday afternoon. I uh, was at Thunderbird Hospital uh, out on the west side. I went to my car. I had forgotten something in my glove compartment, and when I turned around, I saw four well dressed teenagers walking towards me, and I just smiled, said hi, and then one of them walks up to me, sticks a gun in my gut, and says, don't say a word, lady, get in the car. And uh, they had just been on a crime spree in Flagstaff and had just arrived back in Phoenix. And I thought they were joking. I thought it was some kind of drama or something going on. And I said, oh, let's not do this, you know. And But the third time I said, let's not do this, he really stuck that gun in my my gut. And I looked at his eyes and knew he was high on some kind of horrible drug. And so I made a split-second decision in that he pushed me in the back of the car, and the other three teenagers were reluctant to get in the car. So I, I, all I could see was my two-year-old daughter's face in my, my mind. 
So I made a decision that as soon as the boy, the other boy, got in the pass, excuse me, the driver's side of the car and opened the door, I was going to make a move, even though there was a gun in my gut. So when he opened the car door to to drive us all away, I screamed as loudly as I could, and I'm a trained opera singer from years ago, and I ran, and he could have shot me in the back, and um, he didn't. And so to make a long story short, those kids were caught because the two girls were 14, and they were bragging about it the next day at high school. So silent witness, I thank you. And um, the main instigator, the boy with the gun, uh, he was in prison for many years, and they they usually let me out, let me know when he gets out. And um, it was a horrifying incident. But what I learned from that, yes, I could have been killed, but all those years of reading news reports where the person who was being held hostage or whatever felt frozen and couldn't fight back, you know, I felt just the opposite. I was going to take control of this, even if it meant dying. I was going to fight back. I love that about you. Because I remember a few people were saying, oh, she's just making that up. Well, that's what that was a very hurtful thing. What happened was that there had literally been two incidents earlier in the news where two different people made up kidnappings. And even the Arizona Republic uh, had a line in the story that kind of implied, well, there were no gun case. Nobody there were, you know, uh, there were no gun shells found because I thought that a shot was fired. But bottom line is they put just enough doubt in the story that maybe I was making it up. And then the New Times, which I can't read, no offense, maybe they have new management now. They did a horrific story about me. And finally, at the very last, and it's at the very last line, basically, uh, the the reporter said, oh, by the way, it really did happen. But um, that was almost, if not as hurtful as the incident, that people thought I was making it up. But no, <laughs> it was real. Yeah, and that's what bothered me about it, because that to me is not journalism, that's sensationalism. It's and, totally sensationalism. And, you know, like you, I, I won't read the New Times because of that, because that really that really stung for a young girl who looked at you as one of my mentors, even though at that point we had never met. Like I said, you were in my living room all the time. Right. And the fact that somebody would even think of kidnapping you, that made me very angry. But, you know, I just, I looked at you as one of those pinnacle women that no matter what was thrown your way, you handled it. And that's what really stuck with me because, as I said before, and I've continued to say this through the years, I didn't have that strong role model that showed me as a woman that we could have that kind of strength. Yes, we do. And seeing the things that you have done have just been so phenomenal. A lot of people have talked to you about different things in your career. And, you know, I was talking to one of our video techs earlier today about the kind of impact you have on people and the fact that you got to talk with Mother Teresa. And a lot of people know the story, but a lot of people don't know the story. And... You ended up with Molly, <laughs> my daughter. Yes. So tell us how that whole thing happened. I know you've told the story, but not on this audience. So well, let's it, hear it. It never gets old to tell it. it. It still feels surreal. I had just been let go of Channel, channel Three. Uh, it was the end of my anchor career, and uh, at the time was replaced by a much younger and prettier young woman. 
And I became friends with that woman. I adore her, and their ratings did great. But that's the nature of TV news. If you go into TV news, you can't – it's it's not a uh, – what is the right word? Uh, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be at that station forever. Mm-hmm. So I was feeling really, really badly about myself, allowed myself to do that. And so I had a pity party for about three months. And then two priest friends of mine said Mother Teresa was coming to Gallup, New Mexico, and could I go with them to do the interview? And so we met up with her in San Francisco. We end up on a private jet with her flying to Gallup, New Mexico, where she was opening up a home for the homeless. And uh, something made me say these words because I just found out I could never have children and my husband and I wanted to adopt a little girl, a Hispanic little girl. Even though Dick is not Hispanic, we, we love the Hispanic community and he speaks fluent Spanish. So bottom line is, I say to mother when the plane is landing, mother, do you ever, ever allow Americans to adopt children from your orphanages in India? And she looked at me and she said, oh, no, you Americans, you kill your babies. No, no, no. And she turned away. But then she turned back around and took my hand and said, but Mary Jo, because you love the poor and the Virgin Mary so much, I'm going to give you a baby. Mm. So you can imagine. Uh, tears were on the airplane and um, and that negative thought that I was having that I couldn't wait for the plane to land because all the anchors from Phoenix were coming up for a glimpse of Mother Teresa, and I was going to be walking off the plane with Mother, you know, with the exclusive interview. None of that mattered. That all fell away for something much more important, and that was the blessing of becoming a mother. And our journey took us not to India, but to a tiny town in Santa Rosa de Copan, Honduras, a Mayan town, where I met Molly when she was four months old at the orphanage. And now she's 33, and I have three beautiful grandchildren. I see all the stuff you post on Facebook, and it's such a beautiful story because you wouldn't think that Mother Teresa would do something like that. Yes. And here you are just a a journalist doing an interview, and then you get blessed with the biggest gift of your life. Thank you for understanding that. I do. Yes. Yes. And while all this other stuff is important, nothing is more important than that beautiful girl, my daughter, and those children and her husband. And, you know, you are one of the best role models a young girl could ever have. So she, she's very lucky that she had that because you talk about so many things openly. And I can only imagine raising her, you probably had the most amazing, closest relationship you could ever have with a daughter. Our relationship is close. I'm not saying that there was a time when you, uh, you know, in oh, her yeah. teens when we didn't spar. Oh, my goodness. But... uh it's to be 20 minutes away from my daughter and her family is the greatest blessing. It's not perfect, but boy, we tell each other we love each other all the time and show it. So now that you've done all these amazing things in your life and your career, I want you to kind of share with us. I know it's probably hard to pinpoint one special moment aside of Mother Teresa and Molly, but what in your life and your career has been the most important thing that you have accomplished. Oh my. Wow. Robin, you are such a good interviewer. I have to choose one. Well, I'm being selfish because I want to know for my own personal reasons. (laughs) And I think it's great that our audience gets to hear it, but you know, it's, 
I, I've always wanted to find out because like I said, you keep opening yourself up and I keep learning more and I don't get the opportunity to actually ask you. So maybe not one. How about your top three? Would that better? Well, a little better. I got to interview my hero and that was Walter Cronkite. Oh, wow. And to get to do a one-on-one with Walter Cronkite was just, I can't find the words. And he was everything that I had hoped he would be and was so kind and gentle and was more concerned about me and made me feel so at ease. Uh, and as we've talked about before, I got to interview Gloria Steinem when I was doing network news, and she turned out be, to be the same way. You think feminist and you think, you know, uh, all this negative stuff of, of being, uh, what's the word, pushy and selfish. And, you know, she was just the opposite. She kept insisting on bringing me coffee. Aww. Those little moments say so much about people, don't they? Yes, they do. And finally, I got to do it, and now I'm bringing it right up to date. My third moment happened just a few years ago. I got to do a documentary in a remote village in Africa, in Kenya, four hours from north of Nairobi, where we stumbled upon some orphans who have HIV-AIDS. There were 60 of them. And they all lived in one room. They ate once a day. Some of them have full-blown AIDS. Others are doing okay. They wore rags and went back and convinced my precious church that we build them a well. And January 4th, I get on a plane, and we're going. three of us are going back to GEM, G-E-M, that's the name of the village, to celebrate the completion of the well and to continue to let those orphans know that they are not alone, that they are loved. So I'm 73. I just had a birthday. Yeah, we're um, Scorpios. I didn't I even know. I didn't that. even know that either. Wow. And so, if you are old, quote older, you you know it's not over until it's over. Uh, I'm going to keep on keeping on. I don't plan to stop. Yeah, I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, because I had this discussion with someone the other day. They're like, "Well, aren't you worried that she's getting a little too old that you might have to do this interview soon?" I'm like, "You don't know her, man." <laughs> She she's going to keep doing what she's doing. And I think it's so cool that you've managed to stay kind of on, you know, on the lowdown here on the lowdown on the radar, but yet people still know you're out there doing things. And I find it incredible that I'm still sitting here across from you right now because, you know, I'm very humbled to have you here with me because you were the one who broke the glass ceiling for so many of us. And it wouldn't be possible for me to do what I'm doing without oh, someone well, like you. Thank you. And you do it so well. You, what you've done, I can't even begin, is that you were smart enough and clever enough to know that learning the technical end of the business was just as important as being, quote, the talent. And for you, I would give anything to have your skills of how you run this board, of how you make us sound better. I'll show you if you want. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's my fear. See, I still have fear of technical things. So we're, so you, you have soared past that glass ceiling, and and I thank you. I thank you for this program. And you never know who you're going to touch through your program and whose life you're going to change your lives you're going to change so i thank you wow how do i even say anything else after that i mean you just gave me the best compliment i could ever receive thank you from the little 
10-year-old girl who used to watch you on TV, just somebody who uh, wanted to be more like you. Well, you are maybe like me, but so much more, so much more. You shine, and you don't let that light go out, my dear. I can't. I know you can't. I can't because I have people like you that I have to, you know, I look up to that, and it, it's, it keeps you very humble. It keeps you remembering that there are so many other people out there who are trying to do something and you have to be one of the positive light forces in the world because there is way too much dark. Well, Robin, finally, I'll say one more thing. I love you. Oh, you're going to make me cry. That's all right. I love you too. Thank you. I feel it. Wow. You know, as I said in the beginning, sometimes when you meet your heroes, they do disappoint you. But again, this lady, nah, nah. I will go to my grave down the road, you know, 40 years from now, always remembering my childhood, you on my TV set, you in my studio, and you in my presence. And thank you. Thank you so much for sharing the journey with me today. You are so welcome. As always, guys, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.